0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome to Healthcare Insight. You're on America's Web Radio, and this is Ron Bachman. You know, the last few weeks we've been talking about socialism, capitalism, tribalism versus nationalism, and all the things that are happening in the United States. Because of the unrest in this country over the past year, There's a lot of misunderstandings about uh, the history of the United States, and in particular, the history of the black community and how many patriots we have that we just don't learn about in school. We don't hear about often enough. Because there's no reason why any segment of society, in particular, the minority community, the black community should feel that they're not a part of this country and be proud of the accomplishments of this country. And so today I want to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly on American history relative to Blacks. But there is so much good, we hear enough about the bad and the ugly in the news media today and how terrible the United States is and how we're founded on racism and that too many of the Black community don't feel a part of this culture that's been created for opportunity to get ahead, to have um, material wealth, to have any kind of advancement in your own life, whether it's material or social or religious or whatever your goals and dreams are, you have that ability in the United States uh, to pursue uh, your own happiness, whatever that is. And that's available to everybody. And, it's not available just to the white community. It's not just white privilege. There may be w- ingrained in many of our systems those things were developed by um, our white ancestors. But what I want to talk about today is how so much of that system was developed by our black ancestors. Those people who were here during the times of difficulty of of slavery, but who also were a part of a country where over 660,000 white people were killed to try to free the slaves and unite this country. Yes, the southern part of our country had a history of slavery to support the economy that they had built, and that ultimately was challenged and defeated. That's the great beauty of our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence, that we were able to address the wrongs and what's also lost in much of this discussion about the minority community and history that's been so lost I want to talk about today and really highlight through a fellow named David Barton and you can watch and see much of what I'm going to present on um, on YouTube but it's so powerful that I wanted to be able to present it to this audience on this station and I'm going to interject as I have the last couple of weeks, with asking questions and providing commentary to the information uh, that he presents. But one of the important things to start with is to recognize something that most people in this country seem to ignore, and that the United States was not unique in having slavery. The institution of slavery has been around since the eons of time. Almost every culture has had a conquering of another people and enslave them. You can go back and read your Bible, and you can see how there's been slaves throughout that period of time and how the Jewish population was enslaved by the Egyptians and then were freed by Moses. You can go back to where the Romans were enslaving Christians. You can go back to um, where many of the um, the European um, uh, inhabitants The Germanic tribes, the people that were in Switzerland that were part of my family when I did my family research, um, they were enslaved. People who came to the United States, many of whom came very poor, and in order to uh, pay off the debts for having uh, traveled to the United States by sea, um, they were put into indentured servitude in order to pay those off. That's just another form of slavery, we have slavery going on today in the United States with the sex slave industry that's far too large and rampant in this country. We have people coming to the United States border that are coming through a slave type of a process to be put into indentured servitude or into the sex slave uh, trade. And we tend to ignore that it's happening before our eyes. We're ignoring it. And we're not even using the right terms. So slavery is not unique to the United States. But what is unique to the United States is the way we address the wrongs through our own Constitution, that document that was established over 200 years ago that still seems very relevant. So what I want to do now is I want to turn this program over uh, to David Barton and ask him about giving us a flavor of the rest of the hour today. Give us an example of some of the historic black patriots and a little bit of the black history that we're going to delve into. So, David, give us a little bit of that background as we start.
2: We're here in an African-American museum to talk about African-American history, so much of which is truly unknown today. For example, if you know of James Armistead, a black patriot inspired during the American Revolution who helped make possible the 1781 Yorktown victory that established America as an independent nation. Or Peter Salem, a black patriot who was a hero of the 1775 Battle of Bunker Hill. He also fought as one of the legendary Minutemen and was a soldier at the battles of Saratoga and Stony Point. And in the famous picture of the 1776 crossing of the Delaware on Christmas night, two men depicted at the front of the boat include Prince Whipple and Oliver Cromwell, two black patriots who served with George Washington and the American generals during the Revolution. Few are aware that many of the soldiers who fought during the American Revolution were black. And unlike the later segregated regiments in the Civil War, many of the units in the American Revolution were fully integrated, with black patriots fighting and dying side by side with their white fellow comrades and soldiers and equally unknown as much of what occurred in black political history that history will surprise and perhaps even shock you but as you will see it's a history based on indisputable facts and documents
1: professor Barden, i am excited about learning the history that i wasn't taught in school and that i think so many people uh, have never heard of uh, these great black patriots At the time of the American Revolution, they were a part of founding this country. They were a part of the fabric of this country. And how do we know about these stories and these people? How did you find out? Um, I understand they were writers and they put it down in writing and you have the documents that you can show what these people said and how they described that history of the United States, that beginning of our country that the black community was so much a part of. Give us some of the names of these writers so that we can all get familiar with them. And From former
2: writers in black history, such as William Nell, Carter Woodson, Benjamin Quarles, Joseph Wilson, Booker T. Washington, Edward Johnson, and others. We learned that you must present the good, the bad, and the ugly to get the full story not only of history in general, but of African-American political history in particular.
1: David, we hear so much of the distortion of the black community. We do hear about the bad and the ugly. We don't hear about the good. But we also hear a lot lately about the 1619 Project and that this country was founded on slavery and clearly the history of black Americans may very well have started and did really start in 1619. But that's not really the political history of the black community. So tell us about that from 1619 uh, to the uh, revolution.
2: Although the history of black Americans begins in 1619 with the arrival of the first slaves in America, the political history of black Americans actually begins in the year 1787, the year in which the American political system was constructed. 1787 was the year the Constitution was written. Today, many critics assert that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document. And to prove this, they point to the three-fifths clause, claiming that the Constitution says that blacks are only three-fifths of a person. One of the earliest black Americans to investigate this claim was the famous abolitionist Frederick Douglass. Douglass had been born into slavery and remained a slave until he escaped to New York. Three years after his escape... He delivered an anti-slavery speech in Massachusetts. He was promptly hired to work for the state's anti-slavery society, and he also served as a preacher at Zion Methodist Church. During Douglass' first years in freedom in the North, he studied at the feet of abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, who taught him that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document. Douglass accepted this claim, and his early speeches and writings reflected that belief. However, Douglass later began to research the issue for himself. He read the Constitution. He read the writings of those who wrote the Constitution. And what he found revolutionized his thinking. He concluded that the Constitution was not a pro-slavery document, but rather it was an anti-slavery document.
1: Let me stop there because this three-fifths issue that's in the the Constitution um, is an argument about how white community... And the Southern community was being racist and not recognizing the full Black um, participation in this country. But isn't it true that the three fifths came from the North and that they didn't want the South to be counted, counting so many people that they would get overrepresented in the Congress if we counted every uh, minority that was then in existence, most of whom were slaves? And that would give the South even more power uh, to try to uh, reinstate slavery or to keep it uh, there. So it really was an anti-slavery provision. It was not um, dismissing or minimizing the value of the black community. It, in fact, was put in there by people who were against slavery and didn't want the South, the Southern states to be represented in the House of Representatives, which is based upon population. They didn't want them to have the kind of power to maintain the institution of slavery, which the northern part of the country was very much against. Isn't that true? So let's go back and let's listen to the comments from um, uh, Frederick Douglass around this issue, how he discovered that, in fact, the Constitution was an anti-slavery document and it wasn't set up to be pro slavery.
0: He explained. I was on the anti slavery question, fully committed to the doctrine touching the pro slavery character of the Constitution. I advocated this with pen and tongue according to the best of my ability. However, upon a latter reconsideration of the whole subject, I became convinced that the Constitution of the United States not only contained no guarantees in favor of slavery, but on the contrary, it is in its letter and spirit, an anti-slavery instrument, demanding the abolition of slavery as a condition of its own existence as the supreme law of the land. Now, here was a radical change in my opinions.
1: Well, I hope our audience is finding this history as fascinating as I do, that there is so much black history here that has not been taught in our schools, that we've never learned about the Patriotism, the founding of our country, with the integration of blacks and whites on a normal basis. It wasn't about slavery, because most of this was happening in the North, and they were working side by side, and they were writing and speaking, and members of Congress, and part of the political structure as we moved forward from our revolutionary days and the separation from Great Britain. Well, let's take a quick break ourselves, and we'll be right back and continue Welcome back to America's Web Radio, this is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. But what we're talking about today is not so much healthcare, but this whole changing economy and culture and politics of the United States. So before we can get into talking about things like healthcare, we need to understand the things that are going on today that set the foundation and the tone and attitude about people and how we self-govern. And one of the biggest issues today is the understanding of the black community and how its history has been lost, but we know it's there, and I want to rediscover that with Professor David Barton. So David, we've been talking about the Constitution. Is it a pro-slavery document or an anti-slavery document? Because so much of our attitudes in today's world surround that particular question. Many people who are sort of anti-American these days, uh, would say that our Constitution was a racist document. But what you're presenting and what Frederick Douglass just talked about was that while that actually was part of the early belief that a further review by Frederick Douglass shows that, in fact, it was an anti-slavery, an anti-racist document that set up the process for the country to move ahead and get rid of slavery and racism forever. Now, this whole issue I touched on earlier, but this whole idea of the three-fifths has been used even in today's world as saying that the Constitution is racist because it only recognized people as of color as being only three-fifths of a person. Give us your take on that. What about
2: the three-fifths clause? Had Douglas not read that clause? Yes, he had. Then, how could he conclude what he did about the Constitution? It was very simple. He understood that the Three-Fifths Clause dealt only with representation and not the worth of any person. You see, the Constitution had established that for every 30,000 inhabitants in a state, that state would receive one representative to Congress. The Southern states saw this as an opportunity to strengthen slavery. Slaves accounted for much of the Southern population. In fact, Almost half the inhabitants of South Carolina were slaves. Therefore, slave owners could simply count their slaves as regular inhabitants, and by so doing could almost double the number of their pro-slavery representatives to Congress. Of course, the anti-slavery leaders from the North strenuously objected to this. After all, slave owners did not consider their slaves to be persons, but only property. These slave owners were therefore using their property, that is their slaves, to increase the power of the slave states in Congress. The anti-slavery leaders fully wanted free blacks counted, but not slaves, if counting slaves would increase the power of slave owners. They understood that the fewer the pro-slavery representatives to Congress, the sooner slavery could be eradicated from the nation.
1: So let's put this three-fifths myth uh, to bed. Let's kill this idea that so many leaders today both black and white, use this three-fifths to talk about how racist our Constitution was, when the reality is many of these political leaders, they're educated in Ivy League schools, at Harvard, at Yale, at Princeton, or wherever, but they continue to misrepresent what that three-fifths is, and it gets into the general population as a statement as to why our Constitution is really racist. So let's Knock this thing out and tell us one more time why the Constitution is, in fact, an anti-racist, anti-slavery document that we should all be very proud that our founding fathers had the foresight to be sure that this thing was structured so that the pro-slavery states in the South did not use their slave population, the minority population in the southern states at that time, to gain more power in Congress to perpetuate the evils of slavery.
2: The final compromise was that only 60% of slaves, that is, three-fifths of slaves, would be counted to calculate the number of Southern representatives to Congress. In other words, it would take 50,000 slaves, rather than just 30,000, before slave-holding states could get a representative in Congress, thus greatly reducing the number of representatives to Congress from states with extraordinarily large slave populations. This, then, is the Three-Fifths Clause. It had nothing to do with the worth of any individual. In fact, free blacks in the North and the South often were extended the full rights of a citizen and regularly voted, both in the North and the South. The Three-Fifths Clause had to do only with representation. It was an anti-slavery provision designed to limit the number of pro-slavery representatives in Congress. This is why Frederick Douglass, unlike many today who have never taken time to study the Constitution, could emphatically declare that the Constitution, all of the Constitution, was anti-slavery.
1: David, tell us about another document that occurred in, I think it was 1789, called Northwest Ordinance, that created free states and set the foundation for Freeing slaves across the United States, even though slavery was rampant in much of the rest of the world. Tell us about the Northwest Ordinance. In
2: 1789, following the ratification of the Constitution, Congress expanded its fight to end slavery by passing the Northwest Ordinance. That law forbade slavery in any of the federal territories then held. And for this reason, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, Michigan, and Wisconsin all eventually came into the nation as free states. On the federal level, progress was being made toward ending slavery and achieving full civil rights for black Americans.
1: Tell us more about this continuous fight from our founding fathers and the black patriots that were working hand in hand with establishing a country that freed itself from slavery, freed itself from the evils of the slave trade. There were a number of issues. So this uh, current day mentality that we have a racist document that started our country, that we are a racist country, really ignores this history that you're telling us. So give us some more details about what happened next.
2: Another important point in Black political history occurred three years later. In 1792, According to the website of the Democratic National Committee, the Democratic Party was started by Thomas Jefferson. The Democratic Party definitely played a role in black political history, a role that will be examined shortly. Some years later, in 1808, Congress continued its fight against slavery by abolishing the slave trade. A famous sermon commemorating the abolition of the slave trade was given by the Reverend Absalom Jones, the first black bishop of the Episcopal Church in America. This sermon was delivered in the famous St. Thomas's Church. Very few today know that in 1808, Congress abolished the slave trade or that Bishop Absalom Jones delivered such a compelling sermon. Although slavery still had not been abolished in all the states, things definitely were moving in the right direction.
1: Clearly, our founding fathers and our founding documents were anti-slavery. But something happened that that process didn't continue. So let's get into the, the ugly part of where things changed, uh, even before the Civil War, where, again, 660,000 white soldiers died, along with black fighters that were on their side, working with them hand in hand to end slavery. When the South was talking about, as we hear today, oh, that was just about states' rights. Well, we know that wasn't about states' rights. It was on to holding their power, their economic power, through the slavery economic structure that was so much a part of the South. That's what they really didn't want to give up. So what happened now after the original founding fathers began to pass away? By
2: 1820, most of the founding fathers were dead, and Thomas Jefferson's party, the Democratic Party, had become the majority party in Congress. With this new party in charge, a change in congressional policy emerged. Recall that the 1789 law prohibited slavery in a federal territory. In 1820, the Democratic Congress passed the Missouri Compromise and reversed that earlier policy, permitting slavery in almost half of the federal territories. Several states were subsequently admitted as slave states, and for the first time since the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution, slavery was being officially promoted by congressional policy. Several other pro-slavery laws were also passed by Democrats in Congress, including the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law. That law required Northerners to return escaped slaves back into slavery or else pay huge fines. In many instances, the law became little more than an excuse for Southern slave hunters to kidnap free blacks in the North and carry them into slavery in the South. For if a black was simply accused of being a slave, regardless of whether he actually was or not, Under the fugitive slave law, he was denied the benefit both of a jury trial and the right of habeas corpus, despite the fact that those rights had been explicitly guaranteed by the Constitution.
1: So the history that you're spelling out for us today is that the Constitution was set up to get rid of slavery in the United States. Subsequent laws were passed to support that removal of slavery and the slave trade in the United States. But between 1820 and 1850, the party that was established by an anti-slavery president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, that party was taken over then by a new generation that actually created and tried to reverse some of the laws and the Constitution that was set up by our founding fathers. Is that what you're saying? We know the ultimate consequences of this change between 1820 and 1850 that really led to the Civil War. But what was the most immediate change and impact on the black community in the United States as this was going on? Because the Fugitive
2: Slave Law allowed free blacks to be carried into slavery, this law was disastrous for blacks in the North. And as a consequence of the atrocious provisions of this democratic law, Some 20,000 blacks in the north completely left the United States and fled to Canada. In fact, the Underground Railroad reached the height of its activity during this period, helping thousands of slaves escape from slavery in the south all the way into Canada simply to escape the reach of the Democrats' Fugitive Slave Law.
1: David, tracking this history now, leading up to the Civil War, what happened in 1854 that dramatically changed the country and brought us to the brink and ultimately into the final stages stages of the Civil War. In 1854,
2: the Democratic-controlled Congress passed another law strengthening slavery, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, thus allowing slavery to be introduced into parts of the new territory where it previously had been forbidden, thereby increasing the national area in which slavery would be permitted. By the way, in 1854, the Kansas-Nebraska Territory included not only Kansas and Nebraska but also what is now part of Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, North Dakota, and South Dakota. Therefore, by extending slavery into parts of the Kansas-Nebraska Territory, Democrats were pushing slavery westward across the nation, essentially from coast to coast.
1: You're painting a pretty clear picture that the racist nature of this country did not start with our founding fathers and our founding documents. In fact, they were very anti-slavery. What happened was that politics took over, that the party that took over the party of Thomas Jefferson really created an environment that expanded slavery when the original documents and the original laws that we passed in this country were anti-slavery. Let's take a quick break and let's come back and let's delve into this a little further as to what happened With the uh, extension of politics after this period of time.
0: Hey folks, this is Victor
2: with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show only right here on America's Web Radio.
1: The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's foundation. Dot org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you.
0: Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised to right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmv. HOF.org. Or you can contact me at six seven eight We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to America's Web Radio and Healthcare Insight. This is Ron Bachman. And today we are talking about black history, um, black political history, black patriots, and how the Black community was ingrained in establishing our political structure and how our political structure and our founding fathers were very much anti-slavery, anti-slave trade, and tried to eliminate it and set up a constitution that was anti-slavery in order to ultimately get rid of it. But something happened between 1820 and 1850, as we've been describing, politics hijacked that process that our founding fathers established. And it was done by, can you believe it, the Democratic Party, which has the support of 90% of the black community in most elections. If they only knew the history of what happened to change what our founding fathers had originally put in, they wouldn't take it back and try to say that we are a racist country from the very beginning and that our institutions, our politics were all about um, and, uh, anti-black and, and pro-white, that in fact, the black community was very much a part of helping to structure uh, this entire country's founding. But in 1820 to 1850, things changed. So I want to go back to David Barton and tell us, okay, we see these major changes of allowing, expanding, promoting slavery between 1820 and 1850 by the Democratic Party. What was the follow-up to that? What did the country do? What happened politically when all that was happening between 1820 and 1850?
2: Following the passage of these pro-slavery laws in Congress, in May of 1854, a number of the anti-slavery Democrats in Congress formed a new political party to fight slavery and secure equal rights for black Americans. The name of that party? They called it the Republican Party. They called it that because they wanted to return to the principles of freedom and equality first set forth in the governing documents of the republic before the pro-slavery members of Congress had perverted those original principles. One of the founders of that new party was U.S. Senator Charles Sumner, who had taken the seat of the great anti-slavery senator, Daniel Webster.
1: Okay, so this new Republican Party was formed to fight slavery and the expansion of slavery that was occurring with legislation between 1820 and 1850. So the first Republican Party running for president was in 1856. Tell us a little bit more about these early days of the Republican Party and its platform. In
2: 1856, the Republican Party entered its first presidential election. In that election, the Republican Party issued this, its first party platform. It was a short document. There were only nine planks in the platform, but significantly, six of the nine planks set forth bold declarations of equality and civil rights for African Americans based on the principles of the Declaration of Independence. The Democratic platform of that year took an opposite position, strongly defending slavery. Amazingly, according to Democrats in 1856, attempting to end slavery would ruin the happiness of the people. Despite such clear differences, the Republicans lost that election.
1: Well, we all know that elections have consequences. So the Republicans lost, the anti-slavery party lost, the pro-slavery party won. Well, what happened with the Supreme Court being controlled by Democrats at that point in time, which had a big impact on leading up to the Civil War?
2: The next year, 1857, a Democrat-controlled Supreme Court delivered this the Dred Scott decision, declaring blacks were not persons or citizens, but instead were property and therefore had no rights. In fact, quoting from this infamous decision, Democrats on the court announced that blacks had no rights which the white man
0: was bound to respect and the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit.
1: So now we see the real beginnings in the history of the Civil War. It really started, obviously, prior to the first shots. It started with the political turmoil of the Democratic Party promoting slavery and Republican Party that was recently formed in 1856 fighting against slavery. But the Republicans lost. So what happened next in the next election of 1860 after the Dred Scott decision sort of reinforce the idea from our Supreme Court that slavery was to be recognized, approved, and expanded, and it actually changed the underlying concepts that were established in our founding documents. In
2: the 1860 presidential election, Republican Abraham Lincoln ran against Democrat U.S. Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois. Both parties again issued platforms the Republican platform of 1860 blasted both the Fugitive Slave Law and the Dred Scott Decision, and it announced its continued intent to end slavery and secure equal civil rights for black Americans. On the other hand, the Democrats in their 1860 platform praised both the Fugitive Slave Law and the Dred Scott Decision. In fact, Democrats even handed out copies of the Dred Scott Decision along with their platform to affirm their belief that it was proper to have slavery, and hold African Americans in bondage.
1: So now we're getting into some of the history that most people have learned about in school, the, the Civil War. They didn't really hear about that whole period leading up to the Civil War and the dispute between the then Democratic Party and the Republican Party. how the Republican Party was formed uh, as an anti-slavery party to fight the excesses of the Democratic Party and the way it was expanding the ability for new states coming into the Union to establish and promote slavery. So what happened in that election of 1860 that went beyond the presidential election? Uh, As we've said, elections have consequences. So what were the ultimate consequences of that 1860 election? In
2: the 1860 presidential election, Republican Abraham Lincoln was elected with only 40% of the popular vote but 59% of the Electoral College vote. Republicans also won a majority in the U.S. House and Senate in that election, thus giving Republicans control of the lawmaking process for the very first time. Given the bold anti-slavery and pro-civil rights positions set forth by Republicans in their platforms, it was obvious to Democrats what was about to occur. The anti-slavery and pro-civil rights position of the Republicans were about to become reality.
1: So tell us more about that reality and what the Democratic Party decided to do when they lost the election for presidency, the House, and the Senate. It almost seems like what happens today, if the Democrats lose, they want to take their ball and run away, so they want to hold on to power and control everything that they can, but what happened in 1860, we know the Civil War established itself, but Give us a little bit more leading up to those first shots. What was the Democratic response?
2: Southern Democrats left Congress and took their states with them, forming a nation that described itself as the slaveholding Confederate States of America. While Northern Democrats did not support secession, they nonetheless generally supported slavery and opposed civil rights for black Americans. In short, the main difference between Southern and Northern Democrats at that time was their view on secession, not slavery.
1: So we got this new Confederate States of America, which was pro-slavery. This is part of the history that most of us have some passing knowledge of, have learned about, and this is where the racism of the United States typically comes from and the bias against the South as having done this. Give us a little bit more of the background and flavor of this new country that was being set up, and as you said, the North, Democrats, And the South Democrats didn't disagree about slavery, they disagreed about secession. And that's what some of the Civil War was ultimately about. But give us a little bit more background here.
2: Returning to the election of 1860, with Republicans firmly in control of the federal government, they quickly began implementing significant changes. In 1862, Republicans abolished slavery in Washington, D.C. And in 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation was issued freeing all slaves in the southern states in rebellion. In 1864, following the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation, several civil rights laws and laws preparing to facilitate civil rights were passed. One of them was this bill establishing the Freedmen's Bureau. Another was this bill equalizing pay for soldiers in the military, whether white or black. The Fugitive Slave Law was also repealed that year over the almost unanimous opposition of the Northern Democrats still in Congress. While Republicans in the North were working to end slavery and secure civil rights, the new nation of Southern Democrats was determined to head in an opposite direction. In fact, Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens, the Democrat from Georgia, delivered a speech entitled African Slavery, the Cornerstone of the Southern Confederacy.
1: David, I believe I've heard you say before that the pro-slavery Southern leaders actually acknowledged the fact that our founding fathers did not want slavery to exist. So again, that's a reinforcement that our original documents were not racist, that they were a pro-Black, fully inclusive citizenry, That was intended by our founding fathers and it was only later taken over by the politics of the democratic party to change that original thought and to bring slavery into being and establish a new nation even if that was necessary to promote the continued existence of slavery
2: stevens first correctly acknowledged that the founding fathers even those from the south had never intended for slavery to remain in america The prevailing ideas entertained by Thomas Jefferson and most of
0: the leading statesmen at the time of the foundation of the old Constitution were that the enslavement of the African was in violation of the laws of nature. But the general opinion of the men of that day was that somehow or other, in the order of providence, the institution would be temporary.
1: I'm not meaning to skip over the horrors of the Civil War and the determination that this country was not going to be divided. But I want to keep on the politics for a moment here. Let's talk about the next presidential election because politics has obviously had a big change in the direction of this country. Let's talk about the election of 1864. Tell us what happened in that election.
2: When it came time for the presidential election of 1864, Southern Democrats were still fighting against the Union. Therefore, the presidential candidate for the Democrats that year was a Northern Democrat, Union General George B. McClellan. McClellan was actually running for president against his own commander-in-chief, but there was a clear difference between the two. In fact, Abraham Lincoln had twice replaced McClellan for failing to obey Lincoln's orders to launch aggressive attacks against the Confederacy. General McClellan's pro-Southern sympathetic behavior was in direct contrast with that of other Northern military leaders. And not surprisingly, the anti-black tone of this Northern Democrat shone through in his presidential campaign. For example, examine this 1864 campaign piece for General McClellan. According to McClellan, since white lives were being lost, and since Republicans were seeking both abolition and Negro equality, McClellan argues that he as a Democrat, should be elected so that he could halt those policies. Republicans also took clear positions in that 1864 presidential campaign. The 1864 Republican platform therefore called for a constitutional amendment to completely abolish slavery, and work was begun in Congress almost immediately on that amendment. That same year, President Lincoln won re-election to a second term. It was in 1865 that the Civil War finally came to a close. The nation of slaveholding states had been defeated.
1: Well, I hope our listeners out there are enjoying this history lesson that many of us did not learn in school, especially linking together all these different issues, the politics and what actually happened uh, in the country and what was really behind some of this. So let's take another quick break and we'll come back for our final session of Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. We'll be right back.
2: If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider
0: joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus,
2: you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio.
1: Welcome back to the final segment of America's Web Radio. This program is Healthcare Insight, but today we're taking a different route. As in the last few weeks, we've talked more about politics and the structure of politics in the United States as leading to either a free market or a more centralized government. We've been talking about nationalism versus tribalism, socialism versus capitalism. So it's important that we take some time to step back from the specifics of issues like health care, and take a look at where we are as a country, especially these last few weeks and this last year when we've had so much turmoil and upheaval in the minority community. We've talked so much about racism and and institutionalized racism. I wanted to step back for this audience, for those listening to this program, and talk about how our founding documents and our founding fathers were anti-slavery, anti-slave trade. They were for freedom and liberty for everyone, including minorities across the board of every type. And so I take this time today to talk about the activities leading up to the Civil War and post-Civil War. And now after the last segment, the Civil War in our timeframe that we're going through is now over. So how did President Lincoln sort of recognize and reflect on the impact of the black community in the United States with the ending of this war. I understand he went to Richmond with black troops. Tell us about that, if you would, David Barton.
2: President Lincoln and the black troops of the 29th Connecticut Regiment visited Richmond, the former capital of the Confederate States of America. An officer in that black regiment recorded the scene. As the president passed along the street, the colored people waved their handkerchiefs,
0: hats, and bonnets, and expressed their gratitude by shouting repeatedly, Thank God for his goodness. We have seen his salvation. The white soldiers caught the sound and swelled the numbers, cheering as they marched along. All could see the president, he was so tall. One woman shouted, Thank you, dear Jesus, for this sight of the great conqueror. No wonder tears came to the president's eyes when he looked on the poor colored people who were once slaves and heard the blessing uttered from thankful hearts and thanksgiving to God and Jesus. Thousands of colored men in Richmond would have laid down their
1: lives for President Lincoln. So, with Republicans firmly in control of the politics with the election in 1860 and the re-election of President Lincoln in 1864, what was the next historical process in advancing the cause of black community in the United States and in abolishing slavery.
2: There were numerous celebrations by black Americans and others at the end of the Civil War, but even before the war had come to an end, a vote had been held in Congress on the Constitutional Amendment to Abolish Slavery, the 13th Amendment. Congress passed that amendment, and this poster was quickly issued to honor the 137 members of Congress who had voted to abolish slavery. At the time of that vote, there were 118 Republicans in Congress and 82 Northern Democrats. Of the 118 Republicans, all 118 voted to abolish slavery. However, of the 82 Democrats, only 19 voted to end slavery. Only 23% of Democrats, and these were the Northern Democrats, When the vote had been taken in Congress on the 13th Amendment to abolish slavery, the chambers had been packed from wall to wall with expectant observers. When the numbers were counted and it was announced that the amendment had passed, a roar erupted from the thousands in the chamber. Hats were thrown and voices were raised in exuberant cheers. Congress had voted to end slavery.
1: So I understand to celebrate the passage of the 13th Amendment through the House and Senate, So go on to the states that a black representative, a black preacher named Henry Garland Garnett was asked to make a speech. And we've got some of his direct words because he came from slaves. And we can hear a black man in front of our House of Representatives talking about that experience in the passage of the 13th Amendment, giving blacks equal rights.
2: Garnett became the first African-American to speak in the halls of Congress, and he preached this sermon on Sunday, February the 12th, 1865, and it was powerful. He began that sermon with a recollection of his own personal experiences. What is
0: slavery? Too well do I know what it is. I was born among the cherished institutions of slavery. My earliest recollection of parents, friends, and the home of my childhood are clouded with its wrongs.
2: The first sight that met my eyes was my Christian mother, enslaved. Garnett then reviewed the prominent historical leaders of both church and state who had strongly opposed slavery. The other day
0: when the light of liberty streamed through this marble building and the hearts of a noble band of patriotic statesmen, leap for joy and this, our national capital, shook from foundation to dome with the shouts of a ransom people. Then, methinks, the spirits of Washington, Jefferson, the Jays, the Adams, and Franklin, and Lafayette, Giddings, and Lovejoy, and those of all the mighty and glorious dead remembered by history because they were faithful to truth, justice, and liberty. We're hovering over this august assembly, the one seen by mortal eyes. Doubtless, they joined the angelic choir Instead, said, Amen! Hallelujah!
1: Well, how did the politics of this play with the church, the congregation of Pastor Garnett's church?
2: The message of thanks passed by the leadership of Reverend Garnett's 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., the church trustees were so pleased with the honor bestowed on their pastor that they passed a resolution declaring that it was the Republican members of the House who had asked Reverend Garnett to speak. The Democrats in the House did not join in inviting him to preach a sermon. Yet this is not surprising given the demonstrated attitude of Democrats toward blacks at that time.
1: You've given us a history of the American experiment that very few probably even know about especially the involvement of the black community in the founding of this country and the founding of its documents they really should be considered part of the founding fathers that we are all well aware of and we would know about more if we were actually taught in school now i know that um professor barton that um there's some current day activities of this Republican versus Democrat party that started back uh, before the Civil War where the Democrats were in favor of expanding slavery in this country and the Republicans were not and were very anti-slavery. But some of those kinds of controls and limitations on freedoms and liberties uh, carry over into today. Can you give us a couple of examples? Because I know you feel very strongly about this and there's some things that maybe Uh, People listening to this that are Democrats um, really don't want to hear, but it is true, and so you've got the facts to back it up. Give us a little bit more of this uh, current-day Republican versus Democrat um, voting and political environment.
2: They still demonstrate even in the most recent years. For example, even though nearly 80% of the nation supports voluntary spoken prayer in public schools, only 13% of Democrats voted for a recent constitutional amendment to permit it. And even though almost 80% of the nation supports public displays of the Ten Commandments, only 21% of Democrats voted for a congressional bill to allow those displays. Consider, too, the congressional bill to remove IRS control from over what pastors can say, a bill that would reinstate freedom of speech to American pulpits exactly the way it had been before Lyndon Baines Johnson amended the IRS Code in 1954 to restrict speech in churches. Only 5% of Democrats voted to allow free speech for churches. There are many other votes in Congress demonstrating a general Democratic hostility toward laws protecting public religious expressions, just as a century and a half ago when they would not join in inviting the Reverend Garnett to deliver his sermon.
1: Okay, so on our timeline, we're now entering the period of Reconstruction in the South and the Republican Party is now enforcing the new civil rights laws, the Emancipation Proclamation and the rights of the previous slaves to actually um, be citizens and to vote and to have their own businesses and to pursue their dreams, the American dream. What happened politically during this period of time with the minority community across the South.
2: Because of the 13th Amendment and the end of slavery, black Americans, particularly in the South, could now enjoy their first real taste of civil rights, their first genuine opportunity for political participation. Within a year, blacks were registering to vote and were forming political parties across the South. For example, at a rally in Houston, Texas, on July the 4th, 1867, 150 blacks and 20 whites Formed the Republican Party of Texas. And black Americans also started other Southern Republican parties as well.
1: Well, we know every action has a reaction, and elections have consequences, and public changes in laws have consequences. So what was the Democratic response to all this Republican takeover uh, in the South during Reconstruction?
2: The Democrats began to fight back in other ways. In 1866, Democrats formed a group that became national. Its declared purpose was to break down the Republican government and to pave the way for Democrats to regain control in the elections. What was the name of that group? The Ku Klux Klan. Although it is relatively unreported today, the historical documents are unequivocal that the Klan was started by Democrats and that the Klan played a prominent role in the Democratic Party.
1: David, give us a little more history now as we move forward in this timeline to the 14th Amendment uh, that um, gave full rights, full voting rights, full citizenship rights to the black community. What happened during the politics of that time between Republicans and Democrats?
2: Although much progress had been made because of the 13th Amendment and the civil rights laws passed in Congress, Democrats in the South still found ways to ignore those laws. Congress responded with the 14th Amendment. A civil rights amendment to the Constitution declaring that former slaves were full citizens of the state in which they lived and were therefore entitled to all the rights and privileges of any other citizen in that state. When the 14th Amendment came to a vote, 94% of the Republicans in Congress voted for the passage of that civil rights amendment. However, the records of Congress reveal that not one single Democrat in either the House or the Senate voted for the 14th Amendment. Perhaps this lack of support for civil rights is not surprising, considering the makeup of the National Democratic Party at that time.
1: Well, I want to thank David Barton for bringing us a history that very few of us ever learned about, very few of us know about, and it's really been enlightening to hear about the Black history from a political perspective in a timeline that makes sense to where we were and where we are today. So why don't you wrap us up, uh, David, with some of the first Blacks to actually represent themselves in Congress in both the House and the Senate. This
2: 1872 print by Courier and Ives shows the first seven Black Americans elected to the U.S. Congress. Significantly, all seven were Republicans. While the Reverend Hiram Rhodes Rebels was the first Black American to serve in the U.S. Senate, there have been others as well. The second was Blanche Kelso Bruce, the first to serve a full term in the Senate. The third black senator was Edward Brooke. Significantly, the first three black U.S. Senators, Rebels,
1: Bruce, and Brooke, were all Republicans. David, this has been a real eye-opener for me personally, and I only wish that other people in this country could understand the history of the Republican Party and the way it was trying throughout its history and its beginnings to eliminate slavery, to uh, bring equal rights to all Americans and to help support the goals and aspirations of the black community. Somehow today, the Democratic Party seems to have turned all that on its head and seems to continue to find ways to subjugate the minorities, to get them to vote for them, but still they remain in poverty. And all the major cities in the United States have been run for over 50 years by Democrat uh, leadership. I hope people listening to this can get a new perspective, and we'll try to keep talking about American politics and its impact on the free marketplace as we move forward. You've been listening to America's Web Radio, and this is Ron Bachman signing off for Healthcare Insight. You're listening to
0: America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.